0: If you have your Bible with you, turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We are uh, significant parts of the way through this short book. Uh, We'll see what the Lord leads us to and how far we get. Uh, If you remember last week, we talked about Jonah's message to Nineveh. A message of impending judgment, of the doom that the Lord had decreed. And yet, at the same time, that the messenger himself served as a visible reminder of God's great mercy even in the face of disaster. This week we're going to look at the response of the Ninevites, of the people of Nineveh. In a sense, it is shocking. Their response is shocking to the point of being nearly unheard of. But If we're going to understand it at all, before I read, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word. If you're able, please stand while I pray and then remain standing as I read Jonah chapter 3. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word to seek your face, to find your truth, because in your word is the only place we can find unvarnished truth, the only place we can find your face unhidden. You reveal your character, your purpose, your actions, your will to us in your word. And you call us to humbly submit to it and to you. Yet, Lord, if you are not at work in our hearts, if your spirit is not restraining our sin and preventing us from perverting your truth, we will run right through it and into our own opinions. We will twist your word if you do not restrain us. So we beg you, send your spirit this morning. Restrain our hearts and our minds. Give us clear eyes to see your truth. Give us faithfulness that we might apply it in our lives as you command. Let your name be praised because of your word read and preached this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I said, I'm reading the whole of chapter 3 of Jonah. This is God's Word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I, would t- that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going about a day's journey. He called out, Yet forty days... And Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. What do you do when you hear a fire alarm? Note, please, that I did not say, what should you do? I said, what do you do? Dr. Stephen Grosch, who is a psychiatrist, has pointed to research that shows Humans generally, when a fire alarm rings, don't respond. Instead of leaving the building immediately, as we know we should, we stand around and wait for more clues. But even with more information, we still don't make a move. Sometimes that proves deadly. For example, in 1985, 56 people were killed when a fire broke out in the stands of a soccer match in England. After the fact, they examined the television recordings of what had happened and it showed that fans did not react immediately and in fact continued to watch the football game, the soccer game, and, and also watch the fire as if the fire were just an additional entertainment to be enjoyed during the match. They failed to move toward the exits. In addition, To that research, other research has shown that when we do get around to moving, we follow old habits. We don't trust emergency exits. We almost always try to exit a room through the same door that we entered the room. After a fire in a club in Kentucky left 177 people dead, forensic experts confirmed that many of the victims sought to pay before leaving the room, and because they did, they died waiting in line. Grosch con- concludes he says after 25 years as a psychoanalyst I can't say that this surprises me we resist change committing ourselves to a small change even one that is unmistakably in our best interest is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation we don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it's going to take us even or perhaps especially in an emergency. We want to know what new story we're stepping into before we exit the old one. In our passage this morning, there's a lot going on behind the scenes because we recognize the mentality that Dr. Grosh was explaining. We recognize that it is nearly universal in humans, almost without exception. We prefer what is familiar to the unknown that might be better, but is unknown. To a point, the more immediate stress that we're under, say, for example, in an emergency, the more likely we are to reject the risky unknown, even if it offers a possible salvation. And this is all the more true when it comes to repentance and the realm of the supernatural, because it necessitates admitting error. Admitting that we were wrong, that I acted wrongly, that I thought wrongly, that I was wrong. And that is always a hard pill to swallow. That is always a hard thing to admit. As humans, we are far more likely to cling to an idea or an ideology or, uh, or even an action long after we recognize, internally at least, that we were wrong. Simply because we don't want to admit that we were wrong. We don't want other people to know that we were wrong. This is the reality of life after the fall, right? We would rather double down on being wrong and shout anyone down who recognizes our wrongness and calls us on it than perhaps being seen as wishy-washy or flip-flopping on a particular issue. Because we're proud. And all too often, I care more about what you think of me than I do about the truth. Given that such is the way the world fits together, what could have induced the Ninevites to display such an incredible change of heart? On both an individual and a corporate or national level, what could have caused them to change? On one level, we can say simply that any act of repentance at any point in all of human history any act of repentance is necessarily a work of God's grace that's absolutely true we'll come back to that in a few minutes but it's also true that God uses means while he is certainly able to impose directly on our hearts and minds and just snap his fingers and our hearts be different of course he can he's God Typically, normally, he uses events and people in our lives to bring us to the point of change. In this case, the historical record of the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital, uh, in the early 700s BC, about the time Jonah would have been visiting, the historical record's not super complete. We simply don't have much in the way of contemporary records one way or the other. But the little that we do have indicates that in the late 800s and early 700s, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, plagues, revolts, and eclipses, all of which were seen as omens or far, of, of a far worse to come. Famines, plagues, revolts, and eclipses. The complete upsetting of their daily lives, all of which they recognized as omens of something worse that was on the horizon. They were mentally and emotionally being prepared for the message that Jonah would preach. In this idolatrous violent city, the capital of a nation that hated the Lord, that hated his people Israel. In this city, God had been at work for a generation at least to soften the ground before he sent Jonah. And this is true in our lives as well. When God calls you to go and speak his truth, to tell of his truth, you may be sure that he is already at work in the person that he sends you to you may be sure that he is already at work and was long before you were aware that person existed. That he is preparing their heart for his words spoken by you. Now, we will most commonly not see the result of that work of God. Most often it will pass by and we won't know what what comes of it most often it will seem like the message will fall on hard-packed soil with no results. And sometimes that's exactly what has happened. God is preparing their heart to reject his word. Preparing them for the destruction that, if we're honest, we know that each of us, that all of us together have earned. When Moses spoke God's word to Pharaoh, Scripture says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Of course, God broke through enough to force Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, but it required the near destruction of Pharaoh and the entire nation of Egypt to accomplish it. At the end of the day, God's word spelled doom and destruction to Pharaoh. And that may happen when you speak his truth to those who don't know him. But it is not always what happens. Sometimes, maybe often, we don't know, sometimes God is at work softening a heart, bringing people to the place of accepting his word and repenting. And that's what we see here. When Jonah spoke the message that God told him, verse 5, the people of Nineveh called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, all the way up to the king. The single person in the whole nation least likely to humble himself before, especially before a foreign deity or a foreign preacher, all the way up to the king. The king put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. And while it's easy for us to focus on the order he gives in verse 7, because that's kind of surprising, 7 and 8, for a national display of humility, of contrition, we have to see that before he issued the order to the entire nation, he first expressed his own repentance. Putting on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's sort of like burlap. Cheap, super plentiful, easy to find, but really uncomfortable, scratchy, and just kind of miserable. Uh, and so putting, wearing sackcloth uh, was a visible and a tangible renouncing of comfort and ease. Uh, an expression of contrition. Saying, I was wrong and I need to Repent. Sitting in ashes was a way to show that life is fleeting, that we have as little value as the remains of last week's fire, but also to acknowledge that we and our works deserve to be burnt up, that they have no lasting value. This is what sitting in sackcloth and ashes is saying. These were expressions of grief and shame and an acknowledgement of guilt Before he issued commands to the nation, he himself repented. Now, this is a hard thing for us as citizens of the United States, right? We have a strong tradition enshrined in law of separation between church and state. We have a long-practiced doctrine in the American church of what's called the spirituality of the church, that the church speaks to spiritual issues and stays out of politics. the idea that a civic ruler would issue commands pertaining to the spiritual well-being of a nation, that's hard for us. That's a hard thing for us to deal with. Here's the thing. Scripturally, this is a far more appropriate response than our, our assumption might think it would be. The king orders a universal expression of grief over sin, the repentance of the whole nation. But he doesn't come up with the idea on his own. He is responding to the preaching of God's word. When God installs someone as shepherd over a nation, which is the most common metaphor for a king in the Old Testament, it is appropriate for that shepherd to lead the nation into repentance when it's necessary. Not simply to defend against all enemies. uh, Not simply to ensure domestic economic welfare. The king must also lead in repentance. Well, the, the king must not di- take doctrine to the church does not mean that he has no right to call for right actions from the church in response to that doctrine, in response to the preached word of God. Now, why do I make that point? We don't have a king. The closest we have to an analog in our nation is constitutionally prohibited from such action. So wh- what's going on? While that's true, the principle of corporate repentance, of corporate engagement with the Lord has not been revoked. God interacts with his people corporately as a group, as a covenant community, and not simply as individuals. Of course, he does engage us individually. The scripture says that God knows us each by name in the same way that he calls the stars out. One by one knows them by name and how how much more value is one who is made in God's image and redeemed by his son? How much more value are you than the stars or the sparrows or the grass and yet he cares for them? How much more will he care for you? Of course, he does engage us individually, but the personal relationship with Jesus... That aspect is very familiar to us. The idea that God would interact with us as a community, as a corporate group, that is much harder for us to grasp. It's much further outside our normal expectation and understanding. Yet it is nevertheless true. Probably the most common, the most familiar place that we find that, that we see this corporate interaction, the possibility for corporate repentance, is in the family. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. The father is not the king of the family. Please don't hear me say that. Any more than I am king of the church, right? Uh, At the same time, parents and the father in particular are responsible before God for how uh, the members of the family, for for the, the way that the members of the household respond to the Lord. I bear a responsibility before God for how I lead my family. But parents, and fathers in particular, it it is appropriate for parents to determine how the family will worship, how the family will express repentance, how the family will engage in grief over shame. All of that is appropriate. But fathers in particular, pay attention to the order here in the passage. Pay attention to the order here in the passage. The king did not simply issue a command that everyone else repent. Now, he did that. But before he did that, he he himself repented. Listen to this clearly. Parents, fathers in particular, listen to this clearly. If you are commanding repentance, but not demonstrating repentance in a visible, tangible way to those God has put in your care, you are not leading well. If God has placed you in a position of authority... You are to be first in repentance. To lead by example in how you repent. We cannot command what we will not do when it comes to faith. Our children will see right through that. And they will follow our actions far more quickly than they will our words. If you would lead, whether in the family or in the church or in the nation or anywhere else, if you would lead, if you long to see God change the face of this place... If you long for a major revival, where do you start? Start in your own heart and life. First, demonstrate repentance yourself. First, be broken over your own sin. Crush your pride and your need to be right, even with your children, as ruthlessly as it is humanly possible to do. And as you do, invite, command, them to come along with you. Repentance cannot be corporate until it has been personal. Repentance cannot be national until it has been local. God works in our hearts first. If you are praying for the Lord to revive this place, and you should be, it desperately needs it. If you are praying for the Lord to revive this place, start by seeking repentance in your own life. Start by seeking revival in your own heart. Only then will you be able to lead others to repent. But what does repentance actually look like? When we look at the response of the Ninevites, king and commoner, we see that it is both hopeful and it is practical And remember that this is a pagan nation that knows little or nothing of Israel and Israel's God. Their familiarity with gods is all about mute idols that don't actually act in any way. Because they're just carved bits of wood and stone. But even there, they knew enough, verse 9, to hope that God might turn and relent of the disaster that had been foretold. They knew they could not command God and they understood that they had earned what was predicted. But they nevertheless hoped that he might not destroy them as their sin had so clearly deserved. They recognized the depth of their predicament before the Lord. They hoped anyway. This is essential to repentance if we're talking about what is repentance and how it works. If there is no hope at all, why bother? If there is no chance that the Lord will relent, there is no hope no matter what happens, then what's it matter what I do? I've already failed. I might as well go do what I want, right? I've already loused it up beyond any chance of repair. I might as well go do whatever feels good. But if there is hope, even if it's the slimmest, most minuscule, tiny chance, if there is hope, then we have reason to pursue him. We have reason to engage in repentance, to turn away from our wicked ways. but it is not only hopeful it is practical it is rubber meets the road on the ground tangible when the king issued his command to repent there was the expected sackcloth and ashes and fe- fasting rather surprisingly even the animals wearing sackcloth deep expression of repentance expression of contrition acknowledging that they had done wrong and deserved punishment and there was a fast which was and is intended to focus the mind on the the true spiritual needs that we have when you when you're fasting and you feel the hunger pains it serves as a reminder that we need spiritual nourishment at least as much as we need physical nourishment fasting is not a way to prove that we're righteous it is a way to remind us that we are not that we are starving for want of Christ. So much is expected, or at least moderately unsurprising. But look at the end of verse 8. Let every man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Let every man turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It is not sufficient to do the right religious activities if you continue to engage in the sin that you're supposedly repenting of. It's not enough to come to church and to come to prayer service and to do the Bible studies and all those things if you're still doing those sins that you're supposed to be repenting of. If there's no practical change in your life, then your so-called repentance is just empty words lip service Now, this is a very common phenomenon in our society no less than any other we see it especially in the pro forma apologies that are basically I'm sorry I got caught or I'm sorry if you were offended by this such things have perhaps the form of repentance but none of its power because it's not even skin deep it expresses no contrition no shame no guilt not even an acknowledgment of wrong. It is also seen in the people who expect and demand to be returned to positions of authority and fame immediately after this so-called apology, as if such an apology, even if it were meant truly, would somehow erase all of the consequences of sin. That you could go back right to where you were simply because you apologized. When we do this or when we accept it from those who would lead, we are minimizing sin and minimizing the cost of sin that is borne by all who are touched by it. Repentance without any practical turning from the wrong is simply empty words. It is utterly useless and totally contemptible. So we have to turn away from the wrong, but in the end, is it enough simply to turn away from the wrong? Though that is a necessary aspect of repentance, is it sufficient on its own to be considered true repentance? In his book, uh, Mission in Christ's Way, Leslie Newbigin, who was a a longtime missionary in India, uh, he wrote about the meaning of true repentance, and I'm just going to read this. He said, I remember once visiting a village near Madras, There was no road into the village, yet you you reached it by crossing a river, and you could do this either on the south side or on the north side of the village. The congregation there had decided that I would come by the southern route, and they prepared a welcome such as only an Indian village can prepare. There was music and fireworks and garlands and fruit and silumbum, which I'm sure I pronounced wrong. Uh, It's the performance of a South Indian martial art done on ceremonial occasions. Everything you can imagine in this celebration Unfortunately, I entered the village at the northern end and found only a few goats and chickens. Crisis, I had to disappear while word was sent to the assembled congregation and the entire village did a sort of a U-turn so as to face the other way. Then I duly reappeared. This is what repentance means. We often think of it simply as turn away from your sins. That might make it look like a traditional, typical call for moral reformation. That is not the point. The point is, the reign of God has drawn near, but you can't see it because you're looking the wrong way. You are expecting the wrong thing. What you think God is, isn't God at all. You have to be, as Paul said, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to go through a mental revolution. Otherwise, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, will be totally hidden from you. Repentance that does not turn away from sin is no repentance at all. But repentance that only turns away from sin is no better and possibly worse. It is simply moralism with no power beyond the ability to change behavior and that only for a little while. No real power to change behavior because it offers no better alternative. No beautiful thing to turn toward. It is simply turning away. There's a book a few years ago now about the, uh, specifically about the spiritual lives of American teenagers and young adults. um, And the author of that book uh, described an understanding of God that he referred to as moralistic therapeutic deism. That is... um, As much as he was talking about teens and young adults, it's a view that has gained widespread uh, popularity, widespread um, prevalence across um, across every segment of our society. It's not just teens and young adults anymore. It's all of us. Uh, According to that view of God, if we live good lives and we're kind to others, then God will provide therapeutic benefits like self-esteem and happiness. But other than that, God isn't much involved in the world. The author concluded that this distant God is not demanding because his job is to solve problems and make people feel good. There's nothing here to evoke wonder and admiration. That is, there's nothing to drive true repentance because in this view, God simply exists to make you happy, to grant you ease, not to lead you into the valley of the shadow of death, and certainly not to lead you through the valley to his own glory beyond it. Sometimes the reality of our plight before God breaks into our conscience in a way that we can't avoid any longer as it did in Nineveh. Then we have two choices. Well, three really, but one of them is, is that we could do nothing, stick our hands, heads in the sand and hope that it all just goes away. Not really a good choice. Don't do that. Um, but that's useless. Ignoring God never has good results. The other two options, the two real options, both look from the outside, like true repentance. They look similar from the outside, but they're very different in reality. One is a surface level turning away from what we now recognize is wrong, but only so far as fear of punishment drives us. The other is a complete heart change that sees the beauty of Christ, and that leads us to run to him and away from sin. As I say, on the surface, they may look pretty similar. It may look like changed behaviors, but very different on the inside. Commentators, as, as you look at Jonah 3 here, commentators are pretty evenly sli- split over which of those two options we see here. Uh, on the one hand, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God, or maybe better, trusted God through the person of his messenger Jonah. In verse 10, God relented of the disaster that he had planned that he had said he would do. Seems like, from the outcome, that this was real, right? God held off the destruction that he had said he was going to do. But where in chapter 1, the mariners referred to Jonah's God by by his covenant name, Yahweh, the personal name of God, and they worshipped him by that name, here in chapter 3, that name is nowhere to be found. There is no mention of God's covenant name at all. They refer to, to him simply generically as God. Again, that doesn't convey super well in our English text, but there is a significant difference there. Historically and from Scripture, we know that within a generation or two, give or take, uh, God would, compl- would in fact completely overthrow Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire and consign it to the scrap heap of history. It would be destroyed completely and replaced by, I think, Persia was what, what, what was next. If this repentance was real, it didn't have any lasting effect beyond the people who were actually there in Nineveh at this time. Now, certainly that's possible. Um, We see that same story again and again in Judges. One generation repents and follows the Lord, and then that generation is called home, and another arises that does not know the Lord at all, that goes their own way, and God brings disaster yet again. So we see that happen, where repentance only affects a little ways. But it also shows that the Lord's mercy is greater than we typically think. Even though we know better, we often are tempted to think that God's mercy is a reward for our repentance. We are tempted to think that God's mercy is a reward for our repentance. But the truth is that mercy that is earned is not mercy at all. By definition, mercy is an undeserved favor. It is not getting the punishment that you have earned. Mercy is saying, I've earned this, but you gave me something else instead that was much better. That's mercy. By definition, it cannot be earned. Even though this repentance may not have been anything more than for show and out of fear of punishment, yet the Lord relented nonetheless. Of course, he would within a a very short time. Uh, He would destroy Nineveh, yet he relented at the least sign of turning away from their sin. And their pitiful show of faith, their pitiful show of repentance, God takes and he blesses it beyond measure, beyond anything rational. And the same is true for us today. We are tempted to think that our faith, our repentance is worthy of praise, worthy of God's attention. In reality, everything we receive from the Lord through the death of Jesus is pure grace. He takes the least little movement of ours towards him. And at that, he has to give it to us to get us to move at all. But he takes the least little movement that he's already given us, and then he blesses it beyond measure, granting us superabundant grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Superabundance. Not because you've earned it. Not because your repentance is of such sterling character and your moral reformation so laudable that God wants to pour out good on you. Trust me when I say it is not. Believe me when I say you need to repent of your repentance. It is not complete. Neither is mine. If you knew about me what God knows about me, you would not let me stand up here and talk. On the other hand, if we knew about you what God knows about you, we probably wouldn't let you in here. If you are his if you belong to Christ purchased by his blood you are here because he is merciful and gracious because he chose to give the punishment that you earned to Jesus the punishment that you your sin purchased he gave to Christ and he chose to give the record of Christ's perfect obedience to you. Not because you've earned it, but because it pleased him to do so. The more you recognize that, the more you see the beauty of that double exchange, the great exchange it's sometimes called, the more you see the beauty of that, the more you will be enabled to repent truly from the heart. Not to earn favor, not to avoid punishment, but simply to please the one who has purchased you from everything you did earn. The one who took what you earned on himself. When your security is there, when your hope is there, then you have no need to fear what people might think. The more they learn the truth, the more glorious God will be seen to be. And because you love Him, because He loves you, that will be your greatest hope. Repentance is enabled because we are forgiven. We are not forgiven because we repent. We repent because we are forgiven. We want to please the one who has redeemed our life from the pit. He is faithful though every one of us be proved a liar for he cannot deny himself. He is faithful. Rest in his work and repent of your sin. Amen. Let's pray.